listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hey, Sarah. Hi, Michelle. And welcome to Belaboured episode 167. In this episode, we bring you the latest from the front lines of the teacher strike in LA. But first, the news. So we're now officially in the longest shutdown ever as we're recording this, and there's no end to the pain in sight. We're often told that the shutdown leaves federal employees idle and without pay, and that's bad enough as it is, but perhaps the only thing worse is going without pay and having to go to work anyway, for free. While about half of the workers impacted by the shutdown are officially furloughed, some 420,000 so-called essential employees have been forced to report to work for no pay. Their jobs include work under security and safety agencies like airport security and border agents, uh, various law enforcement and investigative personnel at the Justice and Transportation Departments, and other first responders. For these workers, while the shutdown drags on, many are pushing for formal restitution of the hours they're putting in. The American Federation of Government Employees, that's the union that represents a bunch of federal workers, is now suing the government for damages under the Fair Labor Standards Act, filed by the law firm Kalajarvi, Chusey, Newman, and Fitch, along with the union. On behalf of the impacted workers, the suit alleges that by imposing forced free labor, the administration demonstrates, quote, conscious or reckless disregard of the requirements of the Fair Labor Standards Act. Case mirrors a lawsuit brought by the 2013 shutdown, for which the settlement is still being litigated, I believe, and that won compensatory damages for an estimated 25,000 workers. That would allow them to collect damages on top of the back wages that they're owed, so basically it would just double their pay. But the consequences of the shutdown aren't just about lost paychecks. It's the opportunity cost of just letting the gears of the federal bureaucracy grind to a halt and neglect both the services and the workers who simultaneously drive and rely on those essential federal functions. The situation is even more tragic for federal contractors, folks like the people who work the concession stands at many national monuments. They go without contracts or unions in many cases, and these workers, who often earn extremely low wages, get squat in terms of back pay because they're not entitled to back pay from Uncle Sam, even if they do eventually cough up for those federal employees. For the lawsuit, it's just one step in trying to hold the government to account for its horrific dereliction of duty here. But it also underscores the remarkable disdain that this administration in particular has towards its own civil servants, while Trump kicks him around as a political football in order to get his silly little wall. I talked to the lead attorney on the suit, Heidi Berkowitz. So the lawsuit is filed on behalf of all of the essential workers. So in other words, there's about 800,000 federal employees that are affected by this shutdown. The reports are that there are about 420,000 of those workers are deemed essential, meaning they have to continue to work during the shutdown, but they will not get paid as long as the shutdown continues. Um, so that's who the lawsuit is filed on behalf of. Can you explain of. who those are? Um, like what agencies and what their jobs are? The lawsuit is filed on behalf of all of the affected essential employees, um, just like it was when I filed the case in 2013. It's not limited to just union members or just a particular union. This time, we are delighted to be working in conjunction with AFGE. It's the largest federal sector union in the country. Um, again, though, the case is on behalf of, of, of all affected employees. 
and I think sort of, you know, the federal workforce, we all have the same goal here, you know, to, to stop the shutdown and get these employees back to work and paid so they don't have to live in this state of turmoil, not knowing when they're going to get their next paycheck. And you know, this is outside of the direct scope of the lawsuit, but you know, there are a lot of other workers, presumably, who are just in a bad position because they're either furloughed or perhaps they're, you know, contractors, they're private sector contractors with the federal government. Is there any kind of relief that they could qualify under, for under the FLSA, even if they are not the particular class of plaintiffs that you're advocating for? My heart goes out to everyone who's affected yeah. by the shutdown, whether you know they're essential or furloughed, whether they're a federal employee or they're a contractor. I mean, quite frankly, it's a domino effect in so many people. I don't think everyone realizes the large-reaching negative consequences of this, what it's doing to families and hardworking people. The Fair Labor Standards Act, unfortunately, sort of the claim that we can bring under the Fair Labor Standards Act is just for people who are performing work and not getting paid for it. Um, Certainly, we're doing everything we can to look into any other avenue of recourse for any of the other employees that are affected. It's, quite frankly, just heartbreaking. And that was Heidi Berkowitz on the lawsuit now being filed against the federal government over the shutdown. While we're on the subject of teachers and their labor, and when really are we not, the West Virginia teachers are still pushing their state for better conditions. Last week, they held walk-ins to let everyone know that they're still here and still organizing. I spoke with friend of the show, West Virginia teacher Jay O'Neill, about those walk-ins. So we had walk-ins, which if people don't know are like informational pickets basically before school yesterday, which uh, was January 9th, which is the date of our governor's state of the state address. It's our new legislative session that's starting up. And so we had walk-ins all over the state, and we called it State of the Schools. Um, We just really wanted to highlight, like, the problems we're seeing in our schools every day. You know, teachers and service personnel were kind of on the front lines of the opioid crisis here. And Mm -hmm. we don't think really the public and definitely our legislature or governor really realized everything that's happening. So we had a bunch of statistics and things. You know, we're number one in child poverty under the age of six. But lots of other things. You know, we're the state with the, I think it's the second highest number of grandparents raising children. Just Mm -hmm. crazy stuff that really affects the way kids learn. And yet we're short. We don't have enough counselors statewide. Uh, we don't have enough school psychologists. We're supposed to have over 700 social workers in schools in our state recommended for us, and we have 58 statewide. And so we just wanted to highlight that and bring and bring that up. And it was a really good thing. We had – I'm still trying to get the correct number of counties that participated, but uh, I know we had over 20 and I think maybe as high as 30 out of 55 yeah. and, and in, across all parts of the state. The counties that didn't do it wore red for ed, which kind of helped reinforce our message. Anyway, um, we got lots of media coverage, and we were kind of all over the place. And it, it was really great, and it was a really great thing for our caucus, which is across, like, right. three different unions here, because it showed, you know, kind of what we were doing and that that push from the bottom could really work and get our message out there. So we felt like it was a big success, and we were really happy with it. And so tell me how this sort of came together. This Was this mostly um, the caucus that pulled these together? Yeah, yeah. We we decided um, back in, like, kind of November, we said, you know, 
State of the State's coming up. We'd like to make some kind of message. We'd also like to get our teachers more active again. You know, we had this amazing strike last year, and it seems like it's kind of just people have wanted to go back to normal. So we were trying to think of good ways to do that. And, you know, people were saying, well, we should go to the State of the State address and ticket or something. But, like, West Virginia is pretty spread out. Not everyone lives nearby. It's on a Wednesday. Like, what could we do? And then talking to a friend who has much more wisdom than me, they were like, why don't you do walk-ins? And I was like, oh, that's a brilliant idea. So that involves everyone. It gets the rank and file more involved and really kind of goes back to where we were with the strike because it's this bottom-up movement across different counties. So we started spreading the idea and talking to each other and started talking to our locals in each county and sharing out the idea. And it turns out a lot of people liked it and liked the message that we were trying to spread. And yeah, it went really pretty well. So where are things with the PEIA stuff? I mean, they're more positive than they were a year ago. Um, that, That task force that we have is still meeting and they put forth more money towards PEIA, at least in the short term. So I think even the governor last night has said he's going to put an extra $150 million towards huh. it, I guess, this fiscal year. I'm not sure on the details yet. But that's good. And what that means is it's not going to get any worse. It's not going to cost anybody any more yeah. right now. The problem, though, and this is one of the reasons we walked out last year, it's like it's the long-term thing, right? Like mm-hmm. it was death by a thousand cuts before. And though, so while the next two or three years, it may be pretty solvent, we're yeah. more worried about the long-term. And that's why we push for stuff like raising the severance tax on natural gas and things like that. Cause we know it's going to take a revenue increase. And of course our Republican led leadership, like does not want to acknowledge that or even think about that. Um, so we're still a little bit in the same place, um, but again, it's better than it was a year ago, and we're, you know, we're going to wait and see what happens. That was Jay O'Neill, an English teacher in West Virginia and part of the West Virginia United Caucus. So Amazon might look to be in the up and up in terms of its stock figures, but its brand image in the public is on somewhat shaky ground. Last month, in the midst of the peak holiday packing season at a New Jersey warehouse, everything spun into chaos when a robot, yes, a warehouse robot, accidentally ruptured a can of bear repellent and ended up putting 24 employees in the hospital, one worker in critical condition, and 54 others requiring emergency treatment for the toxic exposure. The trauma and the protests that followed attested to a brewing tension in communities and in the vast Amazon workforce. Though the company has largely thwarted unionization and claims to be a responsible employer, labor advocates are growing increasingly vocal in challenging the company's massive political and economic clout. They complain of being extremely overworked, forced to process packages at superhuman speeds for unsustainable wages, facing extreme pressure to meet daily fulfillment quotas. Warehouse Workers Stand Up, a partner group of SEIU, held a rally at the New Jersey plant, demanding that Amazon not only stop spraying workers 
workers bear repellent, but adopt a proposed code of conduct, which includes a living wage starting at $15 per hour. That's basically the standard that New Jersey is uh, working towards if it's just passed minimum wage legislation. And provide full-time and predictable work schedules, as well as health care and paid sick days. The goal is to establish a basic standard of stable, sustainable jobs at Amazon that could become a national model, perhaps. I spoke with Abdel Hadi Nafai, a former Amazon worker who remains active with warehouse workers stand up. The working condition in Amazon, we work in like in, in a big warehouse, probably the biggest one around New Jersey. And if the condition about like heat or, or air condition is not enough for us, that's the first thing. And the second thing is that the, the work they serve is more than what they expect. Like when I started, it, we go with the rate like, uh, like 165 and then moving on 65 to 85 to 235. And a lot of people is giving hard, hard time to, to do what is supposed to, uh, the Amazon asking for. And, and really, a lot of people get angry and hurt. Uh, and a lot of people got fired because they, they can't do the, the number Amazon asking for. And just, just about it, they just ask you to do something. It's not easy to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and how many hours do you work there? Say in a week? Work, uh, uh, 40 hours, but uh, most of the time they give you like another 10 hours uh, mandatory overtime. Mm-hmm. It's like 50 hours mm-hmm. every week. Nobody stays there. You see, I stayed three years. We few people there stay that time. Other than that, everybody come and go. Come and go. Mm-hmm. Nobody stays there more than five, six months. Yes, and another thing, I think that's what the management looking for, you know. They need a new blood, you know. They don't need you, you be there and you can't give them the numbers they need. They need everybody coming excited in the beginning. And then when they get tired, yes, they fire you and they bring another. That's how they do, I think. I you know, see. playing okay. with people, people energy. Right, right. So basically they yeah. think that they just run through workers, right? They work you until you're exhausted and then they bring yeah, in a new person. Yeah, yeah, okay. I, 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 Until you say, I'm give up. And I also spoke with Hibak Mohammed. She's in Shakopee, Minnesota, where she helps organize Amazon workers there, who are largely based in the Somali refugee community in the region. It's an initiative also supported by SEIU, and the workers have been advocating for fair schedules and working conditions, as well as special provisions for the daily Islamic prayer that many take at the work site. She talked about the intense stress that workers face on the daily and the toll it's taking on their community. Amazon, they want to just pressure the workers, the, the, the managers, like entertainment managers. Amazon, they just they want to get new, hire people. Just they're going to fire easy, you know? That's what they do. Because I know I have a lot of experience on Amazon. Because I work in Sydney, so I've been building MSP1, Shakabi. Amazon, they, they, they hire new people, then they fire quickly, but they hire. But the thing we wanted, we work hard. We want just the basic, we're asking them basic needs, you know? We don't want like a pressure. We are human. We are not machines. They don't want to change. But yeah, we, we will. We will work. In, um, we will pressure in Amazon to change. Because um, the people, these people, they have. They, they need. They need money. They have renting houses. They have cars. They working hard. Still, they they fear. They work hard. Yeah. They are not giving you reward. They give you Amazon pressure, and they treating you bad. You come in fresh the morning. We work. I work six thirty. Some people they work five thirty afternoon. You come in when you're fresh to Amazon, yeah. in the building. Yeah. You go in afternoon, you work in 10 hours and a half. 
when you finish the the, the shift, all people no, they already I, I get that experience. All people they kind of sad. They, they, their legs bane, they have a pressure. Oh my God, the world, some people they're talking about, they weren't about the rate. Oh, today my rate is low, what are they gonna do? And you just heard two Amazon labor activists, Abdul Hadi Nafai and Hibak Mohammed. Hello from, well, it's supposed to be sunny Los Angeles, but it is in fact pouring on the first day of the United Teachers Los Angeles strike. Nevertheless, as you can hear in the background, the teachers are out, the picket lines are uh, bumping, and, uh, well, I'm here for all of the action. Uh, some of the reasons we're out here, first of all, uh, Junior has said that he has offered us a 6% raise. This 6% raise is still contingent on cutting back health care benefits for new employees. That is unacceptable. It not only harms them, but it opens the door for his his cutting our own health care later down the road. He has said he has offered funds in answer to our demands. His weak offer basically pays for about one
We need direct action, and what we're doing now is exactly that. Let me get you to say your name into this. My name is Marche Doss. All right, and you're a senior at Dorsey High School. Dorsey High School. So tell me why you're out here with the teachers. I'm out here with the teachers because we're fighting to get the things that we deserve, and the teachers are helping that fight, but this is also a student's fight. Mm -hmm. So it's only right that a student is out here. Yeah. yeah. Students deserve, I've heard, as an organization of... Yes. Tell me about that. Um, Students Deserve is an organization, it's a student-led organization that fights to make Black Lives Matter in schools and to make sure that all schools get wraparound services throughout. It's also a grassroots coalition. Mm -hmm. Excellent. How long have you been organizing with Students Deserve? For about two years. Wow. Excellent. What should people know about your school? People should know that my school is great and it deserves, and it has great students in it and it deserves to have all the resources that it can have. What are some things that you don't have that you should? Well, I should have more another college counselor. Mm-hmm. Our college counselor ha- also has the position of being a 10th grade counselor now. Uh-huh. So it's like half the time we barely see her. Um, we deserve to have smaller class sizes, of course. 46 students in one class. That, that isn't um, something that we should have. And we also need a psychiatrist, you know? basic things that everyone should have. More counselors, everything. What's your favorite thing about this school? About my school? Yeah. My the favorite thing about my school is the pride. Yeah. Like, all of those people are out here today to support Dorsey. That's parents, teachers, and students. That's Dorsey pride. Okay, tell me your name. Noah Lippy Klein. Alright, and what do you teach? I teach here at Dorsey High School. I've been here for 20 years. I teach history. What grades? All of them? Basically all of them. I mostly teach U.S. history and AP U.S. history. Uh-huh. Um, I mean, I've talked to a few teachers from different schools around here. I universally hear about class size. What are some of the specifics about the school that you guys are fighting for? So Dorsey is a fantastic school. The kids are totally awesome. But the conditions are unacceptable to both the teachers and the kids. So, for example, last year I had 49 students in my AP U.S. History class. So there were kids standing, there were kids sharing desks. Uh, Totally unfair when kids in other parts of Southern California are in way more smaller classes. So that's a huge thing. So we're fighting to get rid of, uh, fighting to put a cap on class size and also fighting to um, get rid of a clause in the contract that allows the district to just declare a fiscal emergency and raise class size anytime he wants to. So class size is huge. We're also um, fighting to make sure there are college counselors and librarians and nurses. So for example, last year we had a college counselor, but this year we don't have a college counselor because we didn't have the funds for it. And that's unacceptable when kids all over the country of college counselors, but we need them at, at schools in South LA as well. Yeah. Tell me more about the, the community that the school serves. Oh, okay, yeah. So, um, so Dorsey's in South LA. It's in what's called the Crenshaw District of South LA. It's one of the few uh, high schools in Los Angeles that's majority African-American. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's 55% black, 45% Latino. And um, it's, uh, it's a school where most of the kids are, are working class kids who live very close to school. A lot of them live right across the street right here. Um, I've taught... Uh, kids and their parents uh, and so it's it's a school with just a lot of amazing young people who deserve way better conditions I am so you've got tell me about who's out here we've got some teachers we've got some students it's pretty awesome we have um, we basically have the entire staff we have a bunch of students 
We have a lot of parents and community members. We have folks from Black Lives Matter here joining us. We have folks from the Los Angeles Tenants Union joining us. We have students from the, from the organization Students Deserve that's been building the student movement and what they call the Making Black Lives Matter in Schools work. Uh, we have a bunch of retired folks out here. Uh, it's pretty awesome. Yeah. And in terms of charter schools, I've heard a lot about charter schools. What's the... Are there a lot of those in this area? What's How have they affected your... Especially since you've been here a while. Have, yeah. have you seen that affect your teaching and, and the schools? Yeah, so charter schools have basically encircled Dorsey. Uh-huh. Um, and... And, you know, we're not upset at families who choose to send their kids to charter schools or whatever. That's not the fight. But the fight is that we have a superintendent who's trying to um, basically turn the whole school district over to charters. So he has this thing called a portfolio plan, which is exactly what they did in Newark, in uh, New Orleans, where there are no more public schools left in New Orleans. And they always start in black communities by shutting down schools or giving schools to over to private companies in these communities and then expanding it across the whole city. So part of the fight here is we're going to stop the superintendent from doing that. And we're also going to put uh, restrictions on how co-locations happen. Do you know that term, co-location? Oh, yeah. I where, live in New York. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so um, uh, because what happens when a school is co-located is, uh, you know this, but when a school is co-located, the charter that's on campus often takes space that the public school students need and deserve, whether it's a parent center or an art room or whatever. And so we're going to try to put restrictions on that through this contract fight. So I understand the last offer from the district actually wanted to raise class sizes. Yes. How did everybody react when they heard that? It's just, it's outrageous because they're, because the superintendent is putting out, he's intentionally putting out misinformation. Like he's saying he's going to reduce class size and then literally at the bargaining table showing us a document where he's crossing out certain numbers and writing in higher numbers. Um, And to anybody who works at a school like Dorsey that already has overcrowded classes, we're not going to accept higher classes. That's why we're on strike to fight for lower class size. What else should people know about your school and about the strike? Uh, What people should know is that students are helping to uh, drive the movement right now. And uh, students who are connected up with uh, Black Lives Matter, students who are fighting to make sure that they're not criminalized and uh, the school to prison pipeline ends, they're fighting for that. That's part of the teachers' union demands as well. And there's yeah, a real sign on the building about restorative justice yeah. programs. Yeah. And there's a real coming together of the labor movement, the fight for public education, and the student movement right now, which is really exciting. Those were some voices from the picket line. I also got a chance to sit down with UTLA President Alex Caputo-Pearl. Our leadership team here in UTLA, we got elected in 2014 with a caucus called uh, Union Power. And we had the previous versions of that caucus, you know, went through a couple transitions and name changes and everything. I mean, it's been around since the 1990s. And had made a couple of efforts at running for uh, leadership that were not successful. And then sort of built a broader coalition where we got sort of a a coalition that was sort of a balance between sort of center political forces Mm -hmm. and progressives. And that didn't really work out well. That was between 2005 and 2011. Mm -hmm. But in the caucus, we were still building on the ground at the grassroots level, doing a lot of community work, um, parents, etc. I was particularly involved in building Coalition for Educational Justice, which 
not the same as the New York Coalition right. for Educational Justice, yeah. but around issues of equity and standardized testing and fighting against racism in schools and so on. And that's when we met in 2009. Mm-hmm. We had some caucuses come out here yeah. for a meeting where CORE from Chicago came, the folks from EDU in San Francisco, there was a group in D.C. at the time, group in New York that eventually became more. And so that sort of started our relationship with uh, CORE, yeah. and it's been super strong yeah. ever since then. Again, I feel like this is kind of getting missed in this narrative now. I mean, the thing, you know, we all hear now is our, our students' learning conditions or our working conditions are our working conditions are our students' learning conditions. But talk about the, the sort of values that came out of the building that you've done both on the ground here and nationally. From the get-go, when we were doing caucus work back in the 90s and then a lot of my work in the, the early 2000s was around this Coalition for Educational Justice, a driving value has been that work with parents and community has to be central to the work that we do as teachers, as community organizers, and as people trying to build a strong teachers' union. Um, So that's been a a real fundamental thing. A second real fundamental thing has been like the centrality of um, racial justice, particularly in a place like L.A., where between 85 and 90 percent of the kids are kids of color. A, a third real driving component has been that we've got to do real systematic organizing, yeah. that that we, you know, just having a small group of people go in and negotiate contracts when others don't really know what's going on, yeah. we can't, can't really have that. And the idea of doing it actually systematically. Right. And assessing where we are in terms of our reach within the members and what we're hearing from members and all that. So those I think are are have been real fundamental things. The the I guess the two others I would add are leadership development being a huge component that, you know, particularly in a in a profession that's dominated by women, mm-hmm. making sure that we're intentionally seeking out opportunities for classroom teachers to develop their leadership in community organizing. Um, union organizing, etc. And then the the last one I would just throw out there is that we we have always felt that we've got to build a union that isn't afraid to strike. Yeah. And of course, the district right now in these very tense moments is mischaracterizing that yeah. as like that we've just been on a pell mell drive towards wanting to strike. But we have been very clear for five years that hey, we think in the labor movement if you have to. You should be able to strike. Yeah. Um, so, like those are some of the have been some of the guiding things. What do you think people have missed in writing about this? I mean, I guess the caucus thing is often missed. That this stuff doesn't come out of nowhere. Yeah, it comes out of often like a couple of decades of like sort of quiet work. It's not like glorious meetings with you know <laughs> upper echelon people. It's like regular conversations with teachers yeah. and you know. And this stuff all happens on a shoestring, right? Yeah. Like you're raising, <laughs> yeah. you're raising yeah. your own raising your own money to to build a caucus. So I think that's missed. I think the other thing that is uh, is missed in just like a strike build up yeah. organizationally is the care and intention that it takes to build systems and structures just within the union. Yeah. Like all the stuff that we're able to do right now 
when we have to do it yeah. of like pushing information out to members, yeah. getting immediate responses from members about like how people are feeling, mm-hmm. pushing stuff out to parents, getting immediate feedback from parents. It's because of years of like setting down systems and structures. So I think those are two things that are yeah. pretty often missed. Yeah. The other thing that yeah. I think is, is missed is, um, and, and we don't, I mean, we're going to find out two weeks from now yeah. how far we got on all this. Yeah. But this whole bargaining for the common good mm-hmm. piece yeah. uh, where we have attempted to inject what we know are non-mandatory subjects of bargaining right. into the process, yeah. whether it be stopping the so-called random searches of students mm-hmm. you know, that are very racialized and, yeah. and disrupt instructional time, et cetera, whether it's uh, this idea of a charter cap, Mm-hmm. Which we know we can't like negotiate with LUSD, but it's a, we see it as fundamental to the future of public education in LA, and so have attached it as a policy question to the bargaining. Yeah. This idea of um, the district establishing an immigrant defense fund mm-hmm. for LUSD families to be able to tap into if they're facing Trump yeah. stuff. So I think that's another thing that's that's missed. What's that meant sort of internally in terms of when you took power in the union, reallocating where union resources were going? So we campaigned in 2014 very specifically on, look, we need an organization that has an organizing director because UTLA forever didn't have an organizing director and department. Number two, we need an organization that has a political director and an actual political department. Third, we need a staffed-up parent community division. Fourth, we need an actual research department. UTLA's never had a research department. So we campaigned on all of this, and and people liked the idea. I mean, members were like, hey, that makes sense. So as soon as we came in, I mean, we were at a place where we our, our dues were, were extraordinarily low. Yeah. The affiliates, I mean, NEA, AFT, CFT, and CTA, to their to their credit and yeah. to our benefit, I mean, they helped us yeah. in in that first year, basically, because we went to them as soon as we got elected and said, we're going to need your help yeah. hiring an organizing director, parent community organizers. They helped. It gave us an opportunity to, to uh, take an all-member vote out to increase uh, dues. We were successful with that. The the members voted eighty two percent to eighteen to increase dues. So it's been pretty substantial in terms of like internal organizational shifts. Los Angeles, I've been sitting in traffic in it a lot the last two days. So um, it's a big, spread out, not terribly dense in a lot of places city. So I imagine that sort of presents unique challenges in terms of coordinating people across all of this space and all of these people. You've got the second largest school district in the country, and New York is crammed into, you know, a few city blocks in a lot of cases. So how does that, staffing up these departments about parent community relations and and organizing, you know, what are some of those challenges that, like, have been kind of L.A.-specific? I mean, you're right. I mean, just the geographic breadth is is stunning. And just the 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 wonderful diversity on top of the geographic yeah. spread does create challenges. Yeah. I mean, we've just had to... I mean, we've been lucky. We had a lot of great staff uh, before we 
even got elected and then have been lucky to hire a whole bunch of great people since then. What really helps with the geographic spread is that we have eight areas and, and rank and file are elected as directors in each area. And so that's crucial to, to being able to have a, a cohesive union program across the entire city uh, because these areas have regular meetings. We've done a whole, a whole effort to structure them into clusters that work. So like a, a system of eight schools that are all right there together, like making sure that they're all in contact, regular contact for the strike it's helped us immensely having this kind of like on the ground leadership of rank and file in each area has helped us identify regional offices for the strike so that we can so we've got i think we have like 15 regional offices right now that we've just gotten from other unions to to distribute materials etc so that's that area structure is crucial yeah yeah and then the other fun thing about la is you have a massive housing crisis I mean, I also, again, live in New York, so we have the same problem. The specifics of that and students, I'm sure, are just terrible. Um, because, again, the same thing. I have a friend who yeah. teaches in the Bronx in New York, and it's like, yeah, a bunch of my students don't have a home. But also, you know, these big cities that everybody assumes are sort of liberal bastions are also the most unequal places in the country. Yeah. And so when talking about all of this, you know, again, we have some of the richest people in the world live in Los Angeles. Some of them also live in New York, and but most of your students are low income. Yeah. And so, like when when you're having this fight in public, I guess how do you bring those issues to people who say don't have kids in public schools or don't really understand the city that they live in because they're insulated from some of the. Yeah, I mean, I I think we've um, well a couple of responses to that I, one is, I mean, the whole like inequality within so-called liberal progressive bastions is is so right on also in education in the sense that and we've been relentless about saying that this is a two-path march that we're on right now we're going to force LAUSD to spend its record-breaking reserve on students right now and we've got to fight to get California out of 43rd place out of the 50 states and for people funding which is outrageous as the richest state and the and the fifth largest economy in the world. So we've been really relentless about that. And and one of the things that we're most proud of is our our very very deep work with groups like the Schools and Communities First Initiative, which we have put major blood, sweat, tears, and money into this effort. And we and we just qualified. For the ballot in 2020, this yeah. uh, the first reform of Prop 13 in, yeah. in years. So I, I bring that up to say that the within that Schools and Communities First coalition, you've got a ton of housing groups uh, that we've also tried to work on housing issues with. In fact, one of the non-mandatory subjects of bargaining that we tried to bring to the table was around housing, that, that the, um, the district has some vacant lots and we're not saying we didn't propose that all district owned vacant lots get turned into affordable housing we know that some should be used for revenue generation etc but at least some of them you can't live in LA and have vacant lots and be able to go to sleep at night with a conscience if you're not 
working with affordable housing developers to, to build affordable housing for some of them. So we actually brought that to the table. Uh, on your question of how do we reach folks who don't have kids, yeah. we're just really lucky to have some badass communications people um, who have come on in the last couple of years and just members and you know teachers yeah. I mean <laughs> teachers yeah. are communicators I mean that's what that's what teachers do for a living is they communicate and so the amount of explosion that we've been able to have in our own social media yeah. in our own uh, messaging uh, etc led by members but also working with communication staff who for example have I mean, they come out of experience in you know Latin American struggles and so on so they know how to do this stuff so that we've really been able to control the message, which I think is appealing even to people who aren't, who don't have kids in yeah. the system of, yeah, class size seems like that would matter. Yeah. Seems like it would matter. <laughs> seems, like yeah. it, seems like it would matter to have a nurse full time, right? And so we've really been able to control that uh, message. So, and these things are kind of connected because I was going to ask about, you have an elected school board and yet, you know, in a lot of, in New York, right, we go over and over about mayoral control. We assume that having an elected school board would make it more democratic. But then you have these extraordinarily expensive small school board fights. And that brings the other part of the question, which is the charter school issue, which is huge. And feels to me, at least, sort of looking at this with a national lens, and I don't know if you feel this here, that like it's reaching... The desire to sort of swarm in here, remake the district, turn it all into charters as much as possible, make it into New Orleans. Um, these feel they, increasingly desperate to me. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, look, we're we're going to get criticized for being a little bit too bold and ambitious, but I mean, one of the reasons that we think what's happening right now is important yeah. is because you cannot look at LA and not have every major national question about public education mm -hmm. come to the fore. Yeah. I mean, and I'll, I'm going to go a little bit off your question, yeah. but for example, the systematic and decades-old underfunding of uh, IDEA and Title I mm -hmm. at the federal level, you can't look at a place like L.A., yeah. which has 85% kids in poverty and 287% growth in charter schools over the last 10 years, that don't take their fair share of special ed kids, you can't look at LA yeah. without immediately having Title I and IDEA be implicated in some way. And in the same way that you can't look at LA without the 43rd out of 50 right. in per pupil funding. You can't look at LA without looking at California's permissive charter school laws. Okay. So we really think that this struggle calls the question on a lot of those different uh, things. And it, and it frankly calls the question on Democrats who have, who have at most moved this agenda and at least let it happen. It's interesting here too because you have these Democrats who, they're, they're not Rahm Emanuel, right? You've got Garcetti and, and Newsom who both have designs on national office and want to be considered progressive leaders. You know, these are not yeah. Rahm Emanuel who just want to mess with people for the fun of it. Yeah. And I live yeah. in Andrew Cuomo's New York, so yeah, I'm used to vengeful neoliberal Democrats. <laughs> uh, but these guys are a little different, and I don't think that they necessarily have any better desires. They're just like, they really don't want to be seen as being Rahm Emanuel. 
Right, and maybe even better examples than Garcetti and Newsom, both of whom I think, you know, bring some things to the table that are positive. Yeah. Um, Antonio Villaraigosa mm-hmm. shaped the politics of Los Angeles indelibly, and, and the politics of California, and Latino political aspirations in the United States. And when he when he made the decision yeah. to follow the money and go with the charter industry, mm-hmm. that was immense. And then and then Jerry Brown at the state level, yeah. who just has not been willing, he just will not touch the the charter issue. So just on the charter question and the school board question, yes, we have an elected school board, and that's important. But what that has meant is that $13 million gets plowed into buying those seats, and that's what they did in order to to get a board that would hire Austin Buechner. I think the, the charter question, I mean, it's interesting in terms of where it is in bargaining and outside of bargaining. We believe, and the district has not contested, that that we can and should bargain on co-locations, which I know Mm -hmm. happen a lot in New York as well, which arguably are the point of the spear of school privatization in the sense that that it's, you know, literally right in there. Comparison is right in your face, yeah. So so we're we're bargaining that. Um, Then then on stuff that that is not in bargaining, like I said earlier, this idea of charter cap, which we came out, came out in support of charter cap, Jackie Goldberg, who is our candidate in, in Board District 5, yeah. immediately amplified our call for a charter cap. The NAACP, as you know, um, Newsom and Thurman have both talked about like a, a pause in charter. So there is an opportunity there. Yeah. And I think you're right that there, there is a, a bit of a scrambling on, on the other side um, yeah. on, on how to deal with this. It's been very interesting that the California Charter Schools Association which has just endless money. I mean, right. literally endless yeah. money. Yeah. Um, it's been very interesting how quiet they've been about a potential teacher strike. Yeah. Um, they've not done a huge advertising campaign yeah. um, against it, um, which I think, which I think shows that they're they're unsure about whether they want to take on teachers when teachers are organized and are controlling the message. Yeah. And of course, a great way to mess with them too is to have a charter school strike. Right. Uh, right. <laughs> it's one way to make charters less attractive. Right, right. I wanted to just talk more about fighting racism in the schools and, and the importance of having an anti-racist union that puts that front and center. Yeah, I mean, in L.A., where, you know, the almost 90% kids of color, yeah. um, 85% low-income kids... To build the kind of movement that we need, not only to fight racism, but also to fight for strong public institutions that right. serve the broad public, it's it's essential to fight with a racial justice lens. We've been very outspoken around and, and have actually done strong work in the immigrant rights movement and have been a part of all of the all of the major uh, immigrant rights. Uh, struggles. We we were able to use our foundation arm mm. to give money to DACA recipients to to renew, and really the 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 frame on. I mean, the way we understand the issues we're facing yeah. are through a racial justice lens, in the sense that in California, you can't really look at the decline in per pupil funding. California used to be among the highest. Right. 
the decline of that put put across an, an X Y axis with the increase in the proportion of kids of color yeah. in California schools. You can't look at that without seeing it as a startling example of institutional racism. Um, this whole issue around uh, the random, the so-called random searches, has gotten a lot of attention. Mm -hmm. It was actually the subject of a. It became a major subject of a city attorney's expert panel, and those have have typically over-targeted black and Muslim youth, mm -hmm. and also have just been shown to be ineffective in terms of like a school safety strategy. I mean, they're counterproductive in terms of having kids feel more anxiety. So I think we've been able to strike this balance of seeing the big issues we're fighting about, yeah fighting about class size and a full-time nurse in schools in a district that is overwhelmingly kids of color is a racial justice issue, period, end of story. We've been able to frame the big struggles that way, but also take on some more specific struggles like the random searches, like the you know support for DACA recipients, et cetera, in a way that, that our, our members have felt really good about, but also that have, that have challenged our members to see our union as, yes, the vehicle for teachers' rights, but also a broader vehicle to fight for, you know, the folks who are our most important allies, who are our parents and, and their kids. And that was Alex Caputo-Pearl, president of UTLA. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. And now it's time for ARG. I wish I'd written that. My pick for the week is Disaster Averted, How Unions Have Dodged the Blow of Janus So Far. It's an In These Times. It's by Heather Geese. And it brings us a bit of unexpected good news. Now, we live in times of crisis, which is why it's always an oddly pleasant surprise when the crisis we thought was right around the corner turns out to be a lot less bad than we had feared. For many involved in the labor movement, as well as observers in the progressive media like us here at Belabored, the Supreme Court's Janus decision was supposed to be an existential crisis. The ruling severely undermined the ability of public sector unions to collect fees from all workers at a represented workplace, and it seemed to be a grim omen and perhaps a day of reckoning for the steady erosion of labor organizing over the past generation. And we all thought that it would be, if not a death knell than perhaps the last gasp for the labor movement. But on the contrary, one year on from the decision, the unions that were bracing for a mass exodus of members are instead seeing a mass recruiting influx. According to Gies, many public sector unions over-anticipated the impact of Janus and have actually managed not only to defensively maintain their membership roles, but also actively recruit new members at a rate not seen in years. In L.A., for example, preschool special ed teacher and also a UTLA member, Georgia Flowers-Lee, told in these times, quote, we've made a strategic decision to intentionally and deliberately go out and talk to members. Meanwhile, Geese reports as the union has become more proactive about organizing, quote, only 56 of UTLA's 34,000 members have dropped their membership as a result of Janus. Not bad. Not only have voluntary dues shot up then, but a new sense of urgency refreshed the union's politics, leading up to the strike that we are now witnessing, perhaps. 
Gies observes further, quote, for UTLA, resisting Janus is closely tied to the union's broader fight to protect public education and secure a better learning environment says an organizer, quote, the organizing of educators through the union is one of the only obstacles to privatizers' efforts to take over public schools. Janice is about undermining and attempting to bankrupt our union so that we're not there to lead the social justice fight for public schools. Uh, But they are. The unions correctly anticipated that the right would supercharge its anti-union propaganda campaign after Janice, seeking, of course, to capitalize on the relaxation of rules on union fees, But people at the end of the day weren't buying it. Consider the case of the free market think tank Freedom Foundation, which claims it has convinced 25,000 public workers to opt out. Peter Starzynski, executive director of the Northwest Accountability Project, called their bluff. Contrary to the Freedom Foundation's thinking, union members aren't stupid. They know the Freedom Foundation has supported every anti-worker campaign and anti-family policy that the far right has to offer. So workers, it turns out, aren't cheaple. And in that sense, maybe both the Freedom Foundation and the Union Brass underestimated their members' political savvy. Yet for a long time, they had also overestimated their own power and appeal. And in previous years, that's how we got to Janus in the first place. Some big unions have actually cut organizing staff since the Supreme Court decision, hoping to control costs, and actually scaled back on their recruitment and member engagement efforts in order to invest more in benefits, opting for the safer bread-and-butter rewards over political resurgence. But our friend at Labor Notes, Chris Brooks, warned that the answer isn't to double down on what unions have been doing wrong. Instead, they need to take a look at what they've been neglecting all along, unaware of the ultimate price that they would pay. He says, we have to go back to unions' roots. We win when we fight, not when we provide better services. Reactions to Janice initially might have been a bit paranoid, but now is not the time to rest on anyone's laurels. The unions had unexpectedly good instincts by changing the way they organize, and they benefited from that. They should have done this a while ago, arguably, before the impending crisis of Janice was on the horizon. And again, it was the threat of a regressive court ruling that rejiggered the movement and led to spheres of massive attrition, and that spurred many union leaders to rediscover the power of organizing. In the end, for now, the last gasp has turned out to be a breath of fresh air. might just be temporary, but that's all the more reason to double down on what we've been doing right. But the most valuable lesson for organizers parallels the hard truth that all social movements have been forced to grapple with under the Trump administration. You can never feel too safe. You can never be too proud, and you can't take your freedom for granted. In times of relative peace, it's easy to forget how things were before. But in an age of constant crisis, it's all too easy to be tragically reminded that we don't know what we've got till it's gone. Historian Greg Grandin, who is a friend of the show even though we've never had him on, and maybe we should change that, has a new book dropping that has managed to be the most timely thing ever, and all of us who are struggling to write books that may be relevant really are jealous. It's called The End of the Myth, From the Frontier to the Border Wall in the Mind of America, and it is literally coming out while the government is shut down over Trump's fantasy border wall. So naturally, Greg has a couple of extremely relevant pieces out this week that relate to the book, The Wall, and the issues of work and social reproduction that The Wall hinges on. One of those pieces in Jacobin is called The Vast, Stupid, Useless Wall, which well, is about what it is. Uh, But it's also about the wall as myth and reality in American politics, spanning our history from the Vietnam War to the present, increasingly unhinged reality. 
The wall, Grandin writes, sprang into the imaginations of our quote-unquote race realists at the same time as they were losing in Vietnam and attempting to wall off communists over there and failing miserably. Declining white birth rates and reproductive anxiety, he points out, were always part of the anxiety that produced desires for a wall. He quotes scientist Garrett Hardin in an editorial in the Eminent Science Journal in 1971, saying, quote, Can a government of men persuade women that it is their patriotic duty to emulate the rabbits? Or force them? If we renounce conquest and overbreeding, our survival in a competitive world depends on what kind of world it is, one world or a world of national territories. If the world is one great commons in which all food is shared equally, then we are lost. Those who breed faster will replace the rest. In a less than perfect world, the allocation of rights based on territory must be defended if a ruinous breeding race is to be avoided. It is unlikely that civilization and dignity can survive everywhere but better in a few places than in none. End horrifying quote. Walls apparently are better than forced birth, though in today's Republican Party, both are actually stated policy. But even as migrant women were hired in droves to care for the children of America's white people that caused Hardin such anxiety, border security became bipartisan policy and the workplace was a particular focus. Grandin writes, quote, The White House saw this anti-migrant campaign as building on Clinton's, Clinton the first, various crime, crime bills which had cut into the Republican advantage on law and order issues. His advisor, Rahm Emanuel, in a 1996 policy memo, urged him to target migrants in the workplace to set a goal of making certain industries free of illegal immigrants and achieving record deportations of criminal aliens. This is great, Clinton wrote on the memo's margin. Even the legislation Clinton signed ending welfare targeted undocumented migrants, banning them from receiving many social services, and prohibiting local jurisdictions from offering sanctuary to undocumented residents. End quote. But, well, and that also is the Rahm Emanuel who tried to bust the Chicago Teachers Union. Anyway, it transpired that somebody needed those growing numbers of Latino voters and their policy preferences seemed to be kind of further left. So Democrats stopped being so blatantly disgusting about security, though Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer's response to Trump last week should remind us that they do still do plenty of hand-wringing about it. Meanwhile, Republicans doubled down on exclusion and suppression, and here we are. Yet those migrants who are so viciously slandered in the media, Grandin notes, have worked hard to do just the kind of work that Republicans pretend to value, building small businesses, taking care of their community, revitalizing the spaces hollowed out by capital. In getting rid of them, what will be left of the America the right so desperately wants to defend? Grandin concludes, quote, at the same time, though, and to return to Borges, the hatred seems symptomatic of terror of mortality of the kind the Argentine writer attributed to Shi Huang Ti. Put simply, the United States' dependence on the labor of people of color confirms the social basis of existence, and thus le the legitimacy of social rights and social democracy. In a, in a political culture that considers individual rights sacrosanct, social rights are something viler than heresy. They imply limits, and limits mean death, the extinction of the uniquely American premise that it, it being the current racially segregated arrangement of wealth distribution extracted and produced in a world on the verge of collapse, is all going to go on forever." end quote. That's all we have time for this week. Stay tuned for more on Los Angeles teachers and plenty of other exciting strike organizing, bargaining, and hell-raising action. Thanks again to Dissent for hosting us, to Natasha Lewis for editing us and making us sound good every week. 
thanks to you for listening, and even more thanks to you if you've rated us on iTunes, shared us with your friends, promoted us on Twitter or Facebook, or generally propagandized on our behalf. Extra special thanks to our belabored sustaining members. Just $5 a month gets you an excellent belabored tote bag, and we also have some fabulous new Descent t-shirts if you sign up to be a Solidarity subscriber. You can find out more about all of that at descentmagazine.org slash belabored dash membership or about the new Solidarity subscription program and t-shirts at descentmagazine.org slash solidarity. You can, as always, email us at belabored at descentmagazine.org if you're a striking teacher or a federal worker working for free, if you're down at the border or in an Amazon warehouse or a call center. You can tweet at us, too, at hashtag belabored. We'll be back in two weeks. Solidarity. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's belabored podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag belabored.